Hello, Barbarians. It's Emmett. I am back for a new installment of Your Energy and Nuclear Podcast, Nuclear Barbarians. I hope you're doing well. I'm excited because today I have a good friend, Robert Bryce, here. How's it going, Robert? All good. Thanks, Emmett. Thanks for coming on. Really excited to have you. So normally I would introduce a guest, but Robert has this funny thing he does where on his show, he has guests introduce themselves. So I'm going to turn that back around on him. Do you mind, Robert? Of course. No, happy to do it. Thanks for having me on, Emmett. I admire your writing for a long time, so it's great. I feel like we're kind of closing the circle here. Yeah, thank you. Um, so my name is Robert Bryce. I'm a dad. I got three great kids. I got a great married to a wonderful woman, same woman for now 35 years. Um, very proud of her. She's an art teacher, photographer, master potter. She's teaching art here in Austin. So I'm proud of my family. I'm a family guy first. I've written a few books. I've written six books on the energy and power business. I've made a documentary called a question uh, called juice, how Electri- electricity explains the world. I live in Austin, Texas, and I'm just, I'm a lucky man. I've been able to write about, think about, and talk about the issues that I care deeply about, which are energy and power and how people need them. And the, these are the keys to, to civilization and, and, and modern society. So I'm a, I'm a lucky man and lucky to be with you. So how about that? Yeah, that's perfect. And uh, it's actually a good start because I've had this question for a while and I've, I've never asked you. And so now I get to. But I'm curious about how you got your start in all this, like what your background is, you know, it was your first book, the book on Enron? That's right. Yeah, that's right. So I mean, my, my so called career over the last 30 years, um, I've never had a real job. I've only been in journalism, right? You know, I've never politician said the only step down from politics is into journalism. <laughs> uh, I don't know if there are any steps down from journalism. Um, but I love my job and I've been very lucky to, and it's taken me all over the world and I get to meet all kinds of new people and go to interesting places and ask impertinent questions. And so, yeah, I wrote, uh, I was the editor of my high school newspaper in Tulsa, Oklahoma, when I was a kid, I didn't study, didn't take a single journalism course in college, ended up at the Austin Chronicle for about 12 years, which is the weekly alternative here in Austin that led indirectly to a magazine job that lasted about nine months. And that led kind of indirectly in a roundabout way to my first book on Enron. So like I said, my so-called career is just kind of been one happenstance thing after another but seems to be working so far (laughs) yeah i'll say so it's wild to get your first book to be about such a catastrophe as enron i mean what was your memory of like happening upon that story and being like oh i gotta write about this well, again, you know, it's one of these cases where right place, right time, you know, a little luck and being, you know, knowing a few people. When I was writing for the Austin Chronicle, I was also doing some freelance work for the Christian Science Monitor. So in that during that time frame, I wrote a short piece for the Monitor about lending overseas private. What was it? The a federal agency was was lending. And, and I so I mentioned Enron. And then and when I was writing for a technology magazine in uh 2001 before the before september 11th in fact it was one of their last issues that they published it was called interactive week i wrote a a long piece about enron which if you remember they had an an outfit it was part of their business called enron online Mm -hmm. and they had a massive online auction system where they were buying and selling electricity contracts with gas uh, futures in panamax shipping container i mean they, they were trying to make a market in virtually everything so I remember, I think it was in July of 2001, I was in the Enron building. I was interviewing Enron employees and I remember they were trading broadband. This was their thing that they were gonna make them. This was Enron broadband. It was kind of one of the last of the big fake businesses that Enron mm-hmm. started. And so I, I kind of had a front row seat on some of this deception. And then 
Enron, if you remember, failed December 2nd, 2001. Well, mm -hmm. I kind of had a lot of the story together. So I'd actually pitched a book before they went bankrupt. And no um, way. And I was at Enron headquarters. I, I drove, I left Austin. I remember it's three or four in the morning that day because they declared bankruptcy, I think, on a Sunday. And I drove to Austin, left, or drove to Houston rather from Austin. Left Austin, and like I said, like three or four in the morning. So I was outside the Enron building when the you know people were walking out carrying their belongings. The people had been fired. So and then I wrote the book in about six or seven months, and it came out in October of two thousand two. It was really the first book, the ser first serious book, I would say, on what happened at Enron. And so you know, it was the right place, right time. And now it's funny. I keep thinking about how that book led to other things, and it led it led to another book, led to another book. But I'm still writing today about some of the things that Enron did back. 20 more than 20 20 25 years ago about liberalization of markets deregulation etc all are in play today yeah i was about to say like what are some of the i mean aside from obviously liberalization deregulation those things i was thinking about enron the other day because I, I live in california so i do a lot of thinking about kaiso and sure. how our grid operates over here and they famously ran the table over here very brutally right and it led to a lot of blackouts what are the most durable elements of the enron scandal or legacy that you see today and how are they playing out well that's an interesting question i hadn't thought about it in those terms but if you recall when enron failed it was the largest corporate bankruptcy to that point in american history mm -hmm. and this was a company that if memory serves i think for seven years in a row was voted the most admired company in america so oh they were killing it it, it was, this was a company that could do no wrong ken lay was the toast of wall street he was the toast of houston and but he was a phd economist who couldn't read a cash flow statement i mean he didn't really <laughs> understand where the money was being made i say that with all candor because one of the things that i found in writing about enron later was that in the 20 quarters before they failed they were only cash flow positive in one of those quarters i mean they were burning through cash and so what the legacy of Enron in terms of corporate governance, I think, is one of the main things mm. that it made Wall Street analysts and brokers and investors have to pay more attention and be more honest in what they were doing and how they were analyzing companies and looking at cash. Because that was one of the pieces of advice I got from one of the Enron accountants I, had, I interviewed. He said, everything comes down to cash. Follow the cash and you'll follow the story. And so and that's what I did. So I think in terms of the corporate governance aspect there's a there's part of the story of enron is that right that, mm -hmm. that it forced this you know sarbanes oxley and some other reforms that were probably overdue but i think the broader legacy in terms of enron today and what we're talking about in terms of electricity markets was this idea that oh we'll just deregulate things and we can sell things and commodities and we don't need government oversight because we're just going to let the market take over mm -hmm. but but as mark nelson and i talked on on the podcast on the power hungry podcast last week that doesn't work when it comes to electricity because it's a critical service. It's not a commodity. It's not, it ain't hot dogs and it ain't hamburgers, not tortillas. This is a different business. And mm -hmm. Enron was one of the, one of the key promoters of this idea. We'll, we'll deregulate gas markets. Okay. Well, molecules, that's different, but we'll deregulate electricity as well. So it was, it was in 2002 that the deregulation of the electric market in Texas took hold, which was just a few months after, in fact, the failure of Enron. So, I, I, I trace some of this deregulatory fervor back to that very same time. And a great point that Mark Nelson made on, on the podcast was that 
the Brits deregulated their market just four years earlier in 1998. Mm -hmm. So these things happened at the same time. These de deregulation pushes happened in the UK and in Texas at the same time with the same idea. And then in here we are in 2021 and both Britain and Texas come to electricity prices within a few months of each other. It's pretty remarkable. It is. I mean, God, especially with what's happening in the UK right now, it's just really, it's a disaster. Uh, I mean, it's frightening, right? It's just, there's no other way to put it. It's just downright frightening. I wouldn't wish it on my worst enemy, you know, and, like, and we could see thousands of people die this winter. I mean, because of lack of gas and, you know, it, and the thing that, you know, hate, hate no, no joy in being right here, but <clears throat> I've been saying it for years that you can't run the world on renewables. And so now the chickens, unfortunately, are coming home to roost to really mix the metaphors here, but it's going to have real human consequences. And that's the part that I think it may be the thing that has to happen, but I, I, I'm, I'm shuddering already to think about what, you know, what the implications and what those final results could be. Mm -hmm. Yeah, me too. I was, I was talking to a friend before I hopped on here who's, who's very plugged into the political world. And the thing he said is, I'm worried we're re-entering Carter territory here in terms of the energy crises of the 70s. Now, I don't know if we are per se, but I think that certain countries will be forced to make important decisions about how they've been doing things and how they want to do them later. Yeah. Well, I think it's interesting, too. I mean, since you, you know, we're talking about Europe is that, you know, Emmanuel Macron just in the last few days is saying, oh, well, nuclear, you know, suddenly we're all in favor of nuclear, right? It was, <laughs> yeah. This took, a, you know, it may have taken a crisis for the Europeans to understand you rely too heavily on gas at your extreme peril. Mm -hmm. And I think that it also proves, you know, I've probably sold more of Meredith Angwin's books than I've sold of my own. <laughs> but I, I'm not complaining, you know, but her, her crystallization of the ideas about the fragility of the grid around the fatal trifecta, too much reliance on imports, too much mm -hmm. uh, reliance on just-in-time gas, and too much reliance on renewables. It's the perfect summation of what is happening in Britain and in the broader UK now. And this discarding of nuclear, the doesn't even want and discarding of, of, of coal fired power plants. Those are the plants you can really count on when the chips were down. And that was mm -hmm. what was the lesson more than any other of the winter storm URI here in Texas. When the chips were down, what were the power plants that were producing power and producing it reliably? The coal and, and, and nuclear plants. Yep, absolutely. I mean, reliability is king. Yeah. You know, like it's a straight line from reliability to affordability. Right, exactly. You know. As a friend of mine is a lobbyist at the Capitol here in Austin, Kenan Goldman put it very well. He said, "If it, 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 energy that's cheap that isn't er, uh, that isn't cheap is uh, that's cheap energy that isn't reliable isn't cheap energy." Yep. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. He said it better than that, but I'm trying to remember. What he's, but anyway, <laughs> was the, that was the gist of it, right? But if it's it, not reliable, then it can't be affordable because if it's not reliable. Then you have to invest in other systems, right? The backup generator, the back gasoline generators that we saw. In, I saw in Puerto Rico, I saw in Louisiana. I mean, yeah, yeah, you'll go, well, it's only 10 cents a kilowatt hour, but we're only gonna give it to you for you know a few hours a day. Well, then it's not worth that much. Yeah, no, absolutely not. And I need it more than that. So I'm going to pay as the people in Lebanon do or talk about in your documentary Juice and in the book, Question of Power, there's a whole black market. Yeah. The they, they, pay two, they pay two bills the generator mafia and even now in Lebanon the generator mafia isn't able to get enough fuel to run their their generator so you see 
all over the world now, whether it's China, India, Afghanistan, Lebanon, California, Britain, we're, we're in the midst of a global electricity crisis. And mm -hmm. it's there are many reasons for it, right? COVID is one of them and underinvestment in, in hydrocarbons more broadly. But for Europe and, and California, it's particularly clear it was this mania toward renewables and, and no understanding at the fundamental level by policymakers of the points that you've made very well about the importance of the grid as the commons, the importance of the electric grid as the 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 essential network for society, as you said, you know, very well, and I'm going to use that line, I've, I've quoted you, there's no such thing as a wealthy country with a weak electric grid, it just doesn't exist. Yeah, no, it's true. It's true. You weaken your grid at your own peril. You know, I think, you know, here's what's worrying to me. So I've been paying attention to some of what's going on in FERC meetings, because yeah. I'm trying to understand more fully the grid. Now, I'm just a beginner, right? Sure. And I'm not initiated in this stuff at all. So I have to learn all sorts of new technical jargon and stuff like that. But I get some fundamentals. Yeah. And what worries me is when someone like the uh, Commissioner Clements, when she says, well, there's no past study that says that we can't do this renewables experiment. Reliability isn't an issue. And I worry about that because, first of all, I think I wonder what those studies are. They could be right. those wonderful, uh, mysterious input modeling that right. is real, real fire abandoned crank stuff. Or, or she does not understand that the way we're doing things now with these big renewables build outs changes what before means, right? because we are no longer doing things the way they were done before because they so fundamentally alter our grid by bringing in increasing volatility and unreliability. Right. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll feed back one idea to you, and it's something I've said many times now because I've, I've had a front row seat on some of this. And, and believe me, you know, when it comes to FERC and the grid, I feel like a rank beginner as well. I mean, and I say that with no, no false humility. It is such a complex system, I oh, mean, totally. incredibly complex. You have the regional transmission organizations, which of course, of course, Meredith Angwin has written about so well. You have the state PUCs, you have the balancing authorities, you have the, the, the I said the state PUCs, you have all these different federally sponsored entities, Bonneville the co -ops. Power, and, and, and then you have the cooperatives, and then you have the publicly owned power producers. So you have roughly you know, 900 cooperatives, 2000 publicly owned electric utilities, a couple of hundred investor owned utilities, you have the government sponsored entities, you're talking about over 3000 different electricity providers when you add it all up, and somehow they are all working together or somehow making it all work in an incredibly complex machine. And so how the government, the federal government then interacts and oversees all of this, and then you have the high voltage transmission electric systems with the bulk mm. power systems. All of these are supposed to work together. And we frankly, I, I would say we've just been damn lucky so far that we haven't had a massive failure that, that has been a sustained one. I mean, we had, you know, massive failure here in Texas, but it's a wonder that it works at all. I mean, <laughs> I mean, truly, it is truly a wonder that it works at all. Yeah. And it's so, the world's largest machine as you lay out in your book. Right. So the question is, well, now where does it go and how does the how and this is one of the things that I think about a lot is how do I play my role or how do I convince policymakers, you know, you've got to get this right and you have to mm -hmm. understand what you're dealing with here isn't a commodity. It's a critical service. Mm -hmm. And to change that thinking is difficult, I think, because and it, and it feeds back to this. What we were talking about earlier about deregulation, Emmett, is that 
how was it that renewables were allowed and in many cases encouraged to get such their 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 stake in the market it was the deregulation of the systems otherwise they would have never grown to this to the scale that they have yeah it seems like it was a combination of deregulation there and then encouragement through subsidy right which really right. helped i think a lot of people think that if you've deregulated something like subsidies aren't going to play a role for some reason right. but that's not how it worked here you know and it's not how it continues to work so i like that you talked about changing people's minds because you have as you said written a number of books put out a documentary i wanted to ask you because in your documentary you talk about how you used to be anti-nuclear in your earlier days i wanted to talk to you about what were like epiphany moments or how has your mind changed over the course of your career around energy? Yeah, thanks. Well, as my dad used to say, too soon old, too late smart. You, you get older and you learn. I, I guess that's part of it. And, you know, at a fundamental, but I'll give credit also to Jesse Ausubel, who I was on the podcast this week and mm -hmm. a, a person I have great regard for, who made me understand the issue of power density and mm. that this is the key issue that when you talk about energy and power systems what's the footprint how what is the power flow from a given area of volume or mass and in that those that one physics metric then determines so much of what comes after and so what jesse's uh, piece that he published i think 2007 in renewable and nuclear heresies it made me understand energy and power systems in a new way that that footprint matters because the mm. lower the power density, the higher the resource intensity. And therein is the crux of what we're seeing now all over the world is that this idea, oh, well, we'll just build a whole bunch of renewables. Well, where the hell are you going to put them? You know, mm. when you've got places like California, New York, even Iowa today, you can't build new wind projects. You just can't do it. And this summer alone, you've seen huge solar projects in Pennsylvania, in, in Montana, in, 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 in Nevada, all of them rejected by local communities. So this, I, these, these basic physics metrics were the things that when I finally started to understand them did in fact change the course of my career and made me understand energy and power systems in a new and I would say much more powerful and inclusive way to be mm. able to understand if you know the physics and the math well then you've solved the problem and i don't mean that by uh, you know to solve the problem i said it's an overstatement but if you understand the physics and the math then you've got an idea about what the system can look like and what the, and why the system yeah. is the way it is yeah no i think that's true that's been a huge revolution in my thinking as well i mean i remember when michael schellenberger first explained power density to me I was like, why wasn't this a part of my high school education of like physics or anything like this? Like, this seems like such a crucial, very basic concept too. It's like, you take a pound of this, a pound of that, a pound of another thing. How right. much energy are you going to get out of those? You know, <laughs> that's, that's the comparison. And the remarkable thing to me still is that people in the energy business get those metrics wrong and mm. that power density and energy density are similar, but they're not the same thing. Power, energy is the ability to do work. Power is the rate at which work gets done. Energy is a sum, power is a rate. And mm -hmm. therein lies the key. And, and power density is about the rate of energy flow from a given thing. And it's the energy flow that we care about. As I've said many times, we don't give a shit about energy. What we want is power. Yeah. We'll put sawdust, we'll put donuts, I'll put, you know, Frito-Lay chili cheese dogs into my, you know, my gas tank. If I think it will get me from here to the grocery store and back. I don't give a damn about what I put in the tank. I don't care about the energy. What I want is power. And therein lies the point, right? And that's what we're seeing now around the world. 
as places like China, India, Germany, Britain, give us some more coal. Where can we get more coal? You know, and suddenly, you know, the Spain, Spain, they were getting ready to shut down their last coal plant. No, oh no, no. Indessa said, no, 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 no. We're, yeah. we're gonna ramp actually, up. actually, let's yeah, hold off on keep that. that up. Can, you, can you can you bring us sixty thousand tons and how soon? And that's yep. what and that's what we're seeing now. Yeah, exactly. Like this is bedrock stuff. You know, it's absolutely crucial to having a functioning society. I mean, that's what's so clear in your documentary. I mean, what was it like to be able to go around the world and actually sit with people and look at this infrastructure and have these conversations? I mean, if I'm in your shoes, that's a pretty transformative experience to me. But oh, yeah. I don't know. Yeah, I'm not you. It, 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 it was. And, 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 and thank you for that observation because, you know... I put a lot of time, a lot of money, a lot of effort into that film, and I'm really proud of it. And Tyson Culver, the director, did a fantastic job mm -hmm. putting it all together. And you know, it was a very much a partnership in, in every sense of the word. And there was a lot of blood, sweat, and tears on the way. But there were those moments where I was talking to people about their lives, like the, the, that one event that really kind of is the heart of the film when I was talking to Rahana Jamadar in this little town, a little village in Majlishpukur in India in, in, mm -hmm. in, uh, in, in, in West Bengal. And I asked her, well, what would your life have been like if you had electricity when you were a kid? And she said, she, of course, she would have gone to college. And I thought, man, you know, mm -hmm. here's something that never in my life, and it took me a couple of days. You know how you are when you see somebody, you meet someone, or you go to a party, and you think, why didn't I think of that then? Yeah. And it was a couple of days later when I was back in Jaipur and had a few hours just to sit and think and write a little bit that I realized, well, that's the story. Right? That all this human potential, that electricity, it, it fuels human potential and darkness kills it. And here was a woman whose, uh, whose potential had been smothered because she didn't have electricity when she was a kid. And I never thought of thought about it when i was growing up well of course i have electricity and shag carpet and a, you know a lava <laughs> lamp and all of a sudden you know, of course well who doesn't well a lot of people don't and so those experiences and in, in seeing puerto rico after hurricane maria and seeing the generator mafia at work in lebanon they were transformative and they did change my life and then being blacked out here in austin in february changed my life again because it was one of those another example of hey man just because you live in austin and it's you know it's hip town doesn't mean you can't be blacked out either and or that government is going to work well it doesn't 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 work where it's a government failure here too mm -hmm. no absolutely i mean i remember you had just started to come on to my radar a few months before the Austin blackouts. Like I had heard your name from Michael when I was at Environmental Progress and from uh -huh. my colleagues like Madison or whatever, but I hadn't like fully made the connection and found you on Twitter and started becoming a fan of your work. And I remember like listening to Power Hungry and being like, wow, this is, I had, first of all, it was a great look, by the way, people who haven't listened at just how the depth of complexity in our power system, because Robert talks to everybody. And like, if you want to, people from gas co-ops, people who are defending fishermen from offshore wind, you know, like it's, it's really valuable. And then I remember you did blackout week once Austin happened and I could just in your voice hear a tenor change. Mm -hmm. Like there was this new understanding, this new fervor about how important it was to respect the grid and our yeah. industrial society. 
And then and then they closed Indian Point. Those stupid bastards. You know. Yeah. I mean, it, it was so offensive to me, and and it still makes me mad to this day. It was so it. sad watching the documentary, and you go to Indian Point, and you talk to Teresa Knickerbocker, who's the mayor mayor over there, and she said, "We're going to lose half our tax base. Right. If this goes away, we're a small town. There's no way to replace that. Right. And they closed it anyway, just for the most craven political purposes." It had nothing to do with the environment, nothing to do with climate. And you have Governor Andrew Cuomo. See you later, you sorry bastard. Don't let the door hit you on the way out. <laughs> cheering this on, right? Saying, oh, how great this is. You know, we're going we're gonna to go all renewable New York. The hell you are. You can't build wind in New York because of the rural backlash against big wind. And so the state has been is trying to usurp or override the objections of local communities and, and reject local zoning, which is unprecedented to force them to take renewable projects. I mean, imagine if this were the oil and gas industry, the outcry, you would be on the front page of the New York Times every day. The New York Times will not cover the backlash against wind energy in New York State. They just won't cover it. I mean, it, all the news that fits to print my ass. They, mm -hmm. they, you know, they'll send they'll send reporters all over the world, but they won't cover this basic land use con these basic land use conflicts in the state of New York. And now they're going to intensify because of the closure of Indian Point, and and electric rates in the state are going to skyrocket because their their grid is now much more dependent on natural gas, and gas prices, of course, are skyrocketing as well. Yeah, no, absolutely. That's actually something that I wanted to talk to you more about because this summer, I believe you worked on a report called Not in Our Backyards or something right. like that. And you've done a great job of talking about the, what is it, like 371 communities that have fought it's back about, it's against- It's about 320 now. 320, yeah, fought back against these big wind projects. I've talked to these people too. I remember talking to somebody in Iowa who was, she was a farmer and she was talking about being at a community meeting and all of the local college kids who were there were like progressives that were basically like laughing her and all her fellow farmers out of the room as these slack jawed yokels who didn't understand what progress was right. because they didn't want the win there. So just tell me more about this situation, what you've learned, who you've talked to. I think it doesn't get enough attention, attention for the reasons that you've brought up. Well, thank you. Um, Exactly right. And this is another issue that as my late brother, John Bryce used to say, just grills my cheese. I mean, that, that the groups like the Sierra Club, and they published a, a long article in their Sierra magazine just in the last few weeks, and I wrote a piece in Forbes about it. And the headline was something to the effect of here's the list of 317 rejections of wind energy, the Sierra Club doesn't want you to see. Mm -hmm. And before that article came out, I emailed a prominent person at the Sierra Club, with the link to my not in my backyard report with the link to the database that's online you can find it on my website robertbrice.com you can find it on the center of the american experiments website with all of those entries with all of the urls the names of the towns the dates the year all of it the county you know the the entity that made the rejection or restriction all of that data is available but they didn't, they, oh no, they went to Vermont. Oh, how cute it is. Those cute Vermonters, you know, they don't want wind turbines in their backyard. The same kind of sneering, kind of, you know, condescending, oh, you poor little, you rural, I bet you put seeds in the ground and you grow food. I mean, how quaint is that? You know, I get my food at the supermarket. I mean, but it's it's part and parcel of this urban-rural divide and mm -hmm. this, this, call it what it is, and a, a very elite crowd of people who think they know better for what should happen in rural America. And 
I spend a lot of time in rural America. I don't see Teslas out there. I don't see, you know, EVs at all. I don't see EV oh. charging stations. I see, I, I see people rolling coal, which is yeah, awesome, I, by the I way. See, <laughs> I see a lot of pe I see a lot of people driving F one fifties and F two fifties, F three fifties and Ram trucks and Silverados. And they work with their hands and they raise the they raise livestock, they raise crops. And I have a lot of respect for those people. And those are the people who are interested in protecting their neighborhoods. And so this whole idea of NIMBY, I, it makes my, it just, it just, as my brother said, it grills my cheese. Everyone cares about what happens in their neighborhoods. Everyone. And mm -hmm. to say that they don't or infer they don't, it's, it's just, it, it, it's staggering in its, in its obtuseness and in its, in its, in its self-importance. And I, I, I've seen enough of it to just make me, you know, I get mad, I get mad thinking yeah. about it. I, no. I totally understand. I mean, look, to, like over here, it's like NIMBY for me, but not for thee yeah. in California, where it's like, we're not going to do any new housing stock. We're not going to do any of these things to alleviate these problems that are totally fixable. Yeah. Right. Um, but you're just going to have to deal with how much of the desert we're going to scrape up to put in this solar panel farm that will work some of the time right because i say so and, and if you don't those desert tortoises and forget all the conservation stuff you heard and yeah. or the fact that all these concentrated solar projects kill birds or that bats and and and, and eagles and, and raptors are killed by wind turbines i'm a bird watcher it's offensive to me and don't even get me started on the idea of um what are, what to do they kill call them it? in order to save them? To kill them in order to save them. Or what is it? Uh, what do they call it in the industry? It's like take, right? That's how yeah. they figure out uh, how many uh, birds yeah. they're going to kill. Yeah. And yeah. that's a total black box. Yeah. Like they self-report. There's no enforcement. You're basically like blackballed for even bringing it up if you want to. It's hard to write on it. It's hard to get anyone to care. I just don't think it's that difficult to say, like, if you put a big metal fan in the sky, it's going to kill things that are in the sky. Right. And at a time when it's clear that uh, avian populations globally have declined dramatically. Mm -hmm. And I say this as someone who's a, I've I mean, been a bird watcher for 30 years and I, I, it's one of the joys of my life. And it's funny, I, you know, I put out a newsletter every Friday and I love the free. bird watching part. I it's, love it. It's, it's free. And, it's to me, it's one of those things. Well, this is me. This is authentically me. And mm -hmm. I get as much resp response from the people on my list, and it's 16 or 1700 names, responding to the bird watching stuff as anything about the energy and power stuff. And it's because it's, 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 it's about the world and about the world that we live in and that we share with other critters that, you know, fly by our windows. Well, they deserve their place too. And so I don't know how many times I've been in debates with people. Oh, well, you know, we, we, the climate change is the biggest threat to wildlife. Well, how are you going to know if you kill all the wildlife today with your stupid wind fan with your stupid wind turbines? But mm -hmm. as you say, the wind industry, they don't have to report that, you know, the number of raptors or eagles that they kill because it's considered a trade secret. <laughs> how about that? I mean, yeah, it's, the way it's they, ridiculous. And the, and the way they measure it is by based on a given like diameter around the turbine base. Well, if yeah. you're a raptor diving at like 100 miles an hour and you hit a turbine blade going, let's say, 100 miles an hour, you're not going to fall within a football field's <laughs> diameter yeah. of that turbine base. But that's how they measure it, you know. Um, and, and like and offshore, it's even and, worse because like and how would you add, add to that is that the 
the mortality rates for bats is much higher. Bats are very slow reproducers. They're the only, mm -hmm. fly, only flying mammal. They're important pollinators and insectivores. And in where they've put wind turbines in Hawaii, the, the, the bat mortality rates have been far higher than they projected. So this idea, oh, well, we're going to do all this to save the climate. Well, okay. Climate change is a concern. It is not the only concern. Mm -hmm. And yet that has been, that's been, uh, you know, like a the Trump card. Oh, well, this is no, it's like Jesse Ossibel said, wind and solar may be renewable, but mm -hmm. they are not green. Yep. No, I think that that's absolutely true. Yeah. I mean, to me, like what's happening is we're acting. I said this sort of in my launch statement where I think part of what's happening is that there's this idea that there's like the environment and we're protecting that and like our society is fine no matter what we do or that's not our consideration. I was like, it seems like if you're going to have a healthy society, you will want beautiful natural things to be a part of that as you are a bird watcher. And the way to get that is through these industrial achievements. Like for me, it's like society first. You want the clean air to breathe. You right. want you want nuclear, baby. You know, yeah. and before that, you want fossil fuels, right. right? So that you can have the infrastructure to do other things. I mean, looking at what it's like without that in America is shocking, and I think it never stops being shocking because you were just in Louisiana, right? Right, last month. Yeah, tell me about that. What was that like? Well, it, it was kind of a harebrained scheme, to be honest. Um, <laughs> yeah. But my colleague Tyson Culver and I have started work on another film because we didn't lose enough money on the first one. You know, Hurricane Ida hit Louisiana in early September. So I think it was September 15th. We decided, well, here, Tropical Storm Nicholas was coming and And we thought, well, let's try and get there before the tropical storm. Let's see, you know, let's do some interviews because there were still mm -hmm. at that point. I think there were a quarter million people in Louisiana still didn't have power. Yeah, it, been, it was a huge been, amount. And it had been two weeks. Mm -hmm. And so we went to New Orleans. We interviewed the Jefferson Power, uh, Parish coroner about a family that had died from carbon monoxide poisoning Ugh. because they put their electric generator too close to the house. It was a brand new generator. They just it was the first time they ever used it. And three of them, they put it too close to the house and they woke up dead. And, I mean, it... it heart-wrenching but it was another example of what people will do i mean it was kind of part of the iron law of electricity people will do whatever they have to do to get the electricity they need and unfortunately these people god bless them you know they didn't understand and it was they died of ignorance and i don't i don't mean that in any condescending way they didn't they literally just they, didn't know they didn't know what they didn't know and so the the fumes from the from the exhaust fumes went up into the attic and the eaves over their building and came down and you know, it just, it, it's heartbreaking, but this is part, you know, this is the way the world is in, in areas where the power goes out and when the power goes out, people die. And that mm -hmm. was what we knew to expect when we went to Louisiana and we went to Terrebonne Parish, which still it was one of the hardest hit areas. And there was damage everywhere. And we interviewed people who were using generators and th that was what we wanted to find. And we did. And you know, but it fits into this same idea that I've been talking about is, you know, electricity is so important. People will do whatever they have to do. And, and it, it's true all over the world. Yeah. I mean, I thought it was really interesting towards the end of your documentary when you start asking people what electricity means to them. Yeah. Right. And what they expect of the grid or whatever. And there's one from Ghana. I, she was very sharp. She was one of my favorite interviews in oh, the yeah. whole 
documentary. I can't recall her name. Priscilla Atanza. Yeah, Priscilla Atanza. And she just said, like, we're not doing this microgrid stuff. She's like, yeah. that's not a real plan. Yeah. <laughs> like, you, can't, you can't eat solar panels, she said. That yeah. Was, which was just a great... <laughs> But yeah, she was she was remarkable, and I remember seeing her the morning before the interview, and she had on this yellow top, and I thought you dressed for the camera, and she did. And she had this effervescence about her, and she, you know, a lot of Elvis, and that's it's one of the things that you know now in my dotage that as I think about, well, what are the things that I can contribute, right? What's my mm -hmm. purpose in terms of what I'm trying to do, and some of these interviews and, and interviewing people and capturing those few moments of their spirit and their person and getting that on camera to me there's just few things that are more powerful than that yeah i mean i think it's essential to understanding what this service what to what our society is right, right. is to have those moments and like why it's valuable and what makes humans so exceptional and, and and how electricity amplifies that right that that yeah the, the electricity is this empowering force right it's that ability to apply energy flow at a and in, in in minuscule amounts and in massive amounts to smelt smelt iron and aluminum or you know do microsurgery or you know make a phone call on your you know your stupid phone thing you know these these things that allow us to do more to be more move to communicate i mean it's this incredible um it's just it, it's fundamentally transformed humans and how we operate and how we interact and there's been it is the most important form of energy and the world's fastest growing form of energy and i think those two facts the importance and the the, the growth are just not appreciated by the people who have political power and and therefore they don't understand how to make sure the system doesn't fail mm -hmm. and how that how important it is that they make certain that it doesn't fail Right. I mean, that's the thing that's baffling to me, right? Because the way I understand society is you're born into it. You receive some things. Some of them you like, some of them you don't. Some of them are just necessary. It's your job to take care of those things, maybe improve some, maybe conserve some, maybe do whatever, and then hand it down to the next iteration that comes sure. through, right? And that is... It's handed down like last names, yeah? Yeah. That just does not seem to be how people think of this infrastructure. And I'm racking my brain to try to figure out why. I don't know if you have any insights there, but it is baffling to me. To me, it's almost like a sacred duty to make sure the lights stay on. I, I like the way you put that. And wasn't it you who used the term presentism? That, yeah. That there's no there's no tomorrow, right? Because mm -hmm. we have to save the world today. And that this idea of legacy, and I like what you're saying there about understanding this industrial base, and you use the, that great term industrial cathedrals, that we're bequeathing this to the future, right? mm -hmm. that we're bequeathing this to our kids. And we want to make sure that that network like the libraries, like the fire stations, like the roads, that these are in good condition. And that, oh, you want to drive on that bridge? Well, the bridge isn't going to fall down, right? If you drive on it, because we've maintained it, right? But the grid has been treated so casually and so cavalierly mm -hmm. by policymakers who are just assuming the market will ride to the rescue and it'll solve it. No, goddamn, no, that's not right. And it's being proven over and over again now. And it's been going to be 
very painful in Europe. And I fear it's going to be very painful in India. You know, we haven't talked about India yet, where you have half of the thermal power stations are, are out of coal effectively. Well, yeah. uh, you're going to have rolling blackouts potentially for months in a country of 1.4 billion people. What are they going to do? What, I mean, are they going to, you know, they're not going to be able to work because they don't have power. They, they don't work. They don't get paid. They don't get, they don't paid. They don't get food. I mean, you know, the knock on effects and we're only in mid October. What are we going to look like in February? I mean, it's truly a daunting uh, set of circumstances we're facing. Right. And this is, you know, to me, it's like, you better figure out which gods you're going to pray to because it's not Prometheus. He only shows up when you dig a shovel into the ground to build a nuclear plant. <laughs> Well, and therein, well, you know, this is, I was on a call today at a webinar about nuclear and, you know, like you, I'm adamantly pro-nuclear. I think we're going to get out of this hole in terms of emissions and all this, this energy sprawl and, and all of the mining that we have to do around coal and, you know, the mining for rare earths. We, we just have to get serious about nuclear. But I, I, unfortunately, you know, an, yet another democratic administration and they're just kind of casual. Oh yeah. Well, you know, the kind of hand wave and, you know, instead of, you know, the president, and this was where Obama, I thought, and, you know, he gave a great speech in Prague in 2009 and mm -hmm. then never said another word about nuclear his whole career and in, in, in the presidency, as far as I can tell, nothing that was positive or really substantive is for Biden to get up and say, you know, this proves we got to get serious about nuclear and we're going full speed ahead. And I mean, full speed ahead and we're going to make this happen. We're going to make it happen damn quick. But you know, it's just not going to happen because you have these anti-nuclear people at the top end of the Biden administration, including Gina McCarthy, who I, you know, I hold responsible directly for the closure of Indian Point. That is oh, same. And I will hold her responsible for Diablo Canyon if it closes as well. These were all projects that were underway under her tenure at the NRDC for sure. And now she's the climate advisor to the White House. I mean, one of the, some of the pushback I get from lefties to my work is that I have overestimated the influence of green NGOs and underappreciated market frameworks. And one of my responses to that is, first of all, you don't know what the hell you're talking about. Second of all, it's just, it's just like do a little bit of research into it. And I mean, people don't understand that it's almost only people like the NRDC or Sierra Club that shows up to the Nuclear Regulatory Commission's public hearings. All right. those people are hearing is anti-nuclear stuff. All they're right. hearing is from the friends of the earth. Now we're going to change that. You know, and I'm hoping to work with some people on how to start showing up to these things and to become a real presence because there needs to be a counterbalance. But yeah. it is astounding how these unaccountable NGOs have spot welded themselves to the state and right. determine so many outcomes. Well, and look at the, the, the tens or even hundreds of millions of dollars that they're getting. Yeah. I mean, oh, huge. Michael Bloomberg huge. gave the Sierra Club. They're, they're getting something like $30 million a year from Michael Bloomberg. Mm -hmm. the, the, the Bezos Earth Fund last year gave the NRDC $100 million. The Rocky Mountain Institute got $10 million. Mm -hmm. Environmental Defense Fund, another anti-nuclear group, $100 million. I mean, this is an enormous amount of money. And it's a lot you know, of failing I, upward, right? I mean, because... But, but, you know, but here's the thing that I thought about, and, and I wanted to mention this because... Again, going back to the Sierra Club, and I don't like them, and I, I you know, I don't like them. I, I, let me be clear, and I'm sure they don't like me, and I'm fine with that. Yeah. But in talking to this one guy, he said, well, we're a campaigning organization, and it made me think, oh, I get it. So you don't have to run anything. You don't have to mm -hmm. make anything work. 
all you have to do is campaign around your little project and you can change some minds or you get a regulation passed or you ban ga natural gas in, in rich cities in California and you give yourself a big pat on the back because the campaign is working. Well, so what? You know, mm -hmm. congratulations. Why don't you try governing? You know, it's easy to be a campaigner, right? It's easy to be a candidate. But when you get in office, well, then you've got to you gotta make things work. Mm -hmm. And therein lies the issue is that these incredibly well-funded organizations don't have to run anything. All they have to do is, you know, send out more fundraising letters and do more campaigns because that's their only thing. And, 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 and they're able to affect these changes that mm -hmm. are undermining the basis of our, our most important networks and they're not held accountable. So it just, it's, the, the, the way the society is being corrupted by these unaccountable campaigning organizations, it's deeply dangerous. No, it is. I mean, you know, Rocky Mountain Institute, I think that's where Amory Lovins works. Oh, yes. Right? He's a big anti-nuclear guy, helped design the energy Vinda. Nobody's coming in to check that guy's card. Yeah. You know, with what's going on in Europe. Nobody's going to hold that dude accountable. And now he's at Stanford. His latest article that was published just the other day, he's at the Precourt Institute for Energy at Stanford University. Oh, is he hanging out with Mark Z. Jacobson? He's apparently hanging out with Mark Jacobson, which who, by the way, was just recently ordered to pay by the court the fees in the slap suit that he filed against Chris Clack. And yet mm -hmm. the New York Times writes about Jacobson like, oh, he's, you know, this is a model scientist. Yeah. And the corruption in this in this system is unbelievable. And it, it, it just it, it's staggering the way this system has evolved so that these unaccountable academics with tenure can put out these models that are have no chance of working. And then they're deemed credible because the model says it can work. I mean, mm -hmm. it, it, it's, it's truly staggering. Yeah. And just so because I have some listeners, I imagine, who've just come into the energy space and don't necessarily know all the names yet. So I've already laid out who Amory Lovins is. Mark Jacobson is an academic at Stanford who published sort of like the paper on the we can do 100% renewables, it's fine. And then some people went and they could tell that it didn't really pass the smell test. So they did some sniffing. And they found out that he had overestimated the capability and also just like the locations of where we could build hydro right. by orders of magnitude to right. the extent where it undermine the entire paper that Jacobson had published. His response to that was to sue them for, I think, like defamation or something like that. A $10 million defamation case against the National Academy of Sciences, the proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, and uh, a mathematician, a PhD mathematician in Colorado named Chris Clack. He didn't, there were 21 co-authors or 22 co-authors of the paper mm -hmm. that was the takedown of Jacobson's work. He only sued one of them. And the one that he sued didn't have any other affiliations, wasn't part of a university or somebody else that would defend him. So that by itself is just as craven and crass as anything you can imagine. And then he files this $10 million lawsuit. And then a few months later, he withdraws it. Well, so now the court in Washington, D.C. has ordered him to pay the legal fees. And I was just looking, in fact, at the, <clears throat> at the most recent pleading in that case. So this guy's dragged it out and dragged it out. Well, why hasn't he been condemned by other academics? I mean, this is this is unprecedented to file a slap mm -hmm. suit like this. And by the way, slap suits are illegal in the United States. And the court found that it was, in fact, a strategic lawsuit against public participation. And and yet, you know, I I asked for comment for you know from Stanford University. No, no comment. We don't have any comment. Well, why not? 
Well, yep. you're, you're you're being embarrassed by your one of your your most famous faculty here. How is it that this is okay? That he's trying to limit speech, and you think this is fine? I don't. I think it's it's abhorrent. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the realm of consequences seems to be really shifted here. I mean, all of this corruption and all of this stuff aside, what's happening now that is giving you hope? Not optimism, right? That's a different thing, but right. hope. Well, I hate to say it in these terms, but I think it is that <clears throat> the world is looking at in the straight in the, down the barrel of a energy crisis that is going to affect millions of people. And that <clears throat> I guess it was bound to come. And what I hope is that the sanity can prevail in the near term to prevent a mass casualty event. And what that means is I'm adamantly pro-nuclear. We need nuclear. But for the, as I wrote in the piece I published in Forbes a few days ago, for the next decade or so, we don't have a choice when it comes to producing the electricity we need to keep society running. We're going to need a lot more coal. We're going to need a lot more oil. And we're going to need a lot more natural gas. And that we have to produce those hydrocarbons if we're going to con continue to be a thriving and wealthy society and that's just essential it's not negotiable mm -hmm. so i you know I, i'm I, what, what did molly ivan say i'm i'm optimistic to the point of idiocy um mm -hmm. because you know we we muddle through and that's the thing that i guess and you know i'm a believer and i just think you know that's my thing is just you just believe right you know i never would have written a books or done a documentary if i just didn't have this blind faith that i could do it and so that's what gives me hope is that we're going to muddle through and it's maybe painful, but we're going to muddle through. All right. Well, I love it. We'll leave it there. That's a great note. Thank you, Robert, for coming on. Emmett, I'm pleased to do it. You know, you're doing, doing some great stuff. Glad to see you, you know, launching the nuclear barbarians. I wish you all the best with it. Thank you so much. And uh, I look forward to more power hungry content and this next documentary that's coming out. So listeners, thanks so much for listening. Please review, share, star, do whatever. Subscribe to the Substack to get this directly into your inbox. That is also where I'll be sending you guys some writing, maybe even a little bit of analysis. That's all for free for you. I want comments from you guys. I want to know what you want to see. I want all of that. So stay strong, stay sharp, and stay radiant.